Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. October 19th, 2023, the still no House Speaker edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm available, just saying, just telling telling the members of the House that I am available. I am nonpartisan, just in case they need somebody, need to call someone. John Dickerson of CBS Primetime is not able to get to Washington immediately to be installed. So maybe John is not a good candidate. Hello, John. Well, I don't know. I, I uh, If called, I will serve. But uh, I'm down here at the Miller Center at UVA talking about the other branch of government, the presidency. So I'm at least legislature adjacent. And judiciary adjacent is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. You'd be a great House Speaker, too. I refuse to be the House Speaker, just for the record. This week on the GabFest, the House Speakership, as we tape, appears to be drifting away from Jim Jordan. We'll talk about the dismal spectacle of a paralyzed, feckless, and hopelessly divided House of Representatives. Then President Biden visited Israel, the invasion of Gaza looms, and there is fury and confusion about the explosion at the Gaza hospital. We'll talk about the terrible situation unfolding in Israel and Gaza. Then is Judge Chutkan's partial gag order on Trump legal? Can she even enforce it? Emily will tell us whether she can stop Trump from saying things about witnesses in the January 6th case. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And reminder, those of you who are going to join us in Madison next week, we will be live in Madison on Wednesday, October 25th, next Wednesday. Governor Tony Evers of Wisconsin is going to be our special guest there. We have also have another surprise special guest. So can't wait to see you. We'll see you next Wednesday. And that'll be our regular show next week in the feed. So President Biden on the flight back from Israel was asked about Jim Jordan's defeat for speaker and said, I ache for him, presumably tongue deeply, deeply in that Biden cheek. As we are taping on Thursday morning, the House seems to be preparing to vote again for speaker. Jim Jordan has now lost two votes as about 20 Republicans declined to support the angry bullying MAGA Ohioans effort to succeed Kevin McCarthy who exited as speaker what feels like decades ago, but was probably only, I don't even know, maybe three weeks ago? Feels like an infinite amount of time. Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, has now, I suspect, received more votes for speaker than anyone in the history of the United States. Um, There is a murmuring among Republicans about elevating bowtie-wearing temporary speaker Patrick McHenry to a more formal role as temporary speaker, although that would almost certainly require some Democratic votes. And meanwhile, we have a November 17th deadline looming for funding the government, not to mention the huge international crises that Congress might want to say something about. So, John, why has Jordan's effort to bull his way into the speakership not succeeded, at least so far? The beatings will stop once morale improves. First of all, very hard thing to do. Doesn't, you know, he can only lose four votes and still make it to 217. So, and there was at one point he could only lose three votes because a member was out um, for a funeral, as I, as I recall. So first it's hard. Second of all, he was bullying at the end or his forces were bullying some of the holdouts and they didn't like being bullied. Third, in the previous round where Majority Leader Steve Scalise was a possible replacement um, for Kevin McCarthy, um, the, the Jordan forces were underhanded in undermining Scalise's candidacy according to many House Republicans. And then finally, temperamentally, he is totally at odds with what the job of being a speaker is. Former Speaker John Boehner called him a legislative terrorist in an interview I did with Boehner when his book came out. He's not interested in legislating, which is okay, except when you're running a legislative body and you have to attend to the duties of the institution. Um, And so legislating with all the the trade-offs and requirements of that, which is what this whole debate really is about, are Republicans capitulating in the legislative process, is something that he's not been interested in in his career. And he has these expectations that are at odds with the institution. So it's like trying to elect a vegan to be the head of a sausage-making factory. It's just he's at odds with the job he's trying to get. 
and that makes him um, a bad candidate in a lot of people's minds. There are other things like his support for uh, overturning the election that are not really that much, except for with, with a couple of members, not really that much of a hindrance, but that are obviously a part of his portfolio that make, would make him a complicated speaker. And we should note there are these old allegations about misconduct, sexual misconduct, based on when he was a wrestling coach. Yes, sexual misconduct did not by him. He, his, yes. his, he had grotesque misconduct, but it wasn't sexual misconduct. That doesn't seem to have come up at all in why he's not getting the job in terms of the support or lack of support from his own people. I do strongly recommend, if you're interested in that, though, the Hang Up and Listen Slate Sports Podcast had an amazing segment on what exactly Jordan's role was in this Ohio State wrestling scandal. And it's kind of appalling. It's really kind of appalling. Not because he was complicit in any of the sexual misconduct, but because he never stood up for his own wrestlers and he put his himself and protecting himself way ahead of the well-being of these young men who he had recruited and he'd coached and he'd he'd made a big deal about being their 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 guy and then sold them out so anyway separate issue so emily is this do you feel like what's happening with jordan is a repudiation of maganus and of being an asshole or is it a vindication of it on the one hand jordan is not likely to be speaker i mean it's not impossible he could sneak it through we we don't know what's going to happen but on the other hand, he's gotten incredibly far. Someone who's never sponsored a bill that became law, someone who's dedicated to undermining the institution, has persuaded most of the members, the overwhelming majority of the members of the ruling party, to capitulate to him and to to vote for him just to get them out of this mess. Yeah, it is kind of amazing how far he's gotten. Can we also talk about what the bullying consists of, right? I mean, he published the names and phone numbers of the members who were not supporting him and basically asked the MAGA world to, you know, come down really hard on them, call their offices, do whatever other pressure campaigns they could think of. Um, it's kind of an amazing tactic against your own party. It's like unleashing the people who you normally unleash against your actual opponents on your own people. And it's hard for me to imagine how you actually then turn the page to govern with those people. Can we dig into that for a second? Because one of the, the the questions I've had is we live in an age, obviously, where bullying and like the bully, the bully position is one you can occupy that in the political stage and, and succeed. And Donald Trump, of course, occupies it. But has anyone else managed to be that kind of bully and and be on the national stage successfully. Jordan wants to be that guy too. DeSantis kind of wants to be that guy. DeSantis has been that guy in Florida, but can't be it nationally. Is it because if they're being toadies to Trump, they can't actually succeed in being bullies? Why can't he make this work? Well, it's a different role. I mean, and he might be able to make it work if he actually got the chance. I don't think we know that. I definitely think it's a problem for DeSantis that he's bowing down to Donald Trump as he's trying to assert himself. It's really hard to play both of those roles at the same time. And the thing about bullies is they're supposed to take up all the airspace so that you can't have another alpha standing there next to you. And I think Trump does that enormously effectively. But he's been mostly staying out of the speaker race, except to kind of criticize Kevin McCarthy, right? So it's more that Jordan just, if he only needed a slightly fewer number of votes, he would be speaker. Although I suppose you could also say that about Kevin McCarthy or Steve Scalise. Also, there's only one Donald Trump. I mean, and we've seen ways in which the transitive property of Trump's power over the, his supporters is weak. So he endorsed Jordan, but that doesn't get Jordan what he needs. Sean Hannity and other other Trump approving voices have uh, tried to put pressure on members. But that pressure isn't as powerful as the pressure that Donald Trump would put on them if he put the finger on those members exactly by himself. So it's just a little bit weaker sauce. And that's not sufficient in these unique circumstances. So, John, where do you think we go next? Assuming, again, we, where, where we are now is that it seems like Jordan is not going to get, yeah. get through. Yeah. House members are predicting he's going to lose by even bigger margins. So the idea with Patrick McHenry is essentially he stays in the job, has limited powers, and then they they have a kind of snooze button thing where he has the powers for some number of days, and then by then the they you know they have another speaker's vote or they they're sort of parallel tracks. They give him enough power to deal with keeping the the government going or trying to, and then and also getting funding for Israel and and Ukraine. 
but then also there is a mechanism that forces trying to get this sort of set this thing settled. But the problem with getting it settled is all the activity that McHenry would engage in is the kinds of activity also known in some quarters as legislating that will irritate the forces that kicked out McCarthy and that have made this problem so difficult to go forward. So I'm not sure. I mean, that's the way I think that it stumbles forward, but it's certainly not a clean future. The minute I saw that guy's bow tie, I was like, this dude is going to he is going to be the interim speaker at some point. I said it mentally, that dude with his bow tie, that's a look the way he bangs that gavel. You knew it was going to happen. I mean, isn't doesn't he become a kind of sacrificial lamb in a helpful way where he gets Democratic votes because he's willing to do the things you just ticked off, keep the government open, fund Ukraine and Israel. And then he he takes all the wrath for that and then they just kick him out and do something else. Well, sure. Very wise. Except who do they replace him with? Because because they just can't get the votes together to get up to 217. Because there will be some number of Republicans, particularly the 14 in districts that Joe Biden won, who might actually want to do the legislating required to actually keep the government going and then return to the priorities of doing America's business. So does it matter once they do those three things? Is there anything they really have to do for a while? Isn't that kind of it? Uh, you know, n- not necessarily. Of course, Republicans might want to do some stuff that would allow them to, um, and particularly if, if holding the House requires doing some stuff for some number of members in tight races, they might want to do some stuff. Because at the moment, the overall image of the party is being defined either by the chaos or by Donald Trump, which is not so great for those members who are in districts that might be competitive. John, is there like a weirder Hail Mary outcome where there is some the moderate I use that term loosely, Republicans come together with Democrats to do something. Is there anything else you've heard about that that could emerge weirdly? Not that I've heard about. I mean, the the McHenry thing is the closest to that. So, no, I mean, there's certainly lots of things floated out there, but none of them have taken on any kind of realistic cast. Do you guys think, not to make the point, I will now shortly make the point that I make every week, but... (laughs) But more brilliantly than usual? I'll ask you guys to set set it up. Do you think that this harms the GOP electorally or reputationally? I mean, it can't be great. It can't be positive. I sort of associate myself with JV last point, which is um, that essentially the party is going to be defined by Donald Trump and that this isn't great, uh, but that essentially the party, when it comes time to voting, it's going to be Trump that determines the party. I think I tend to think the general's chaos soup that is both Trump and this process, since those forces are connected. And as you pointed out earlier, David, there is, I mean, the idea that 200 Republicans are okay with Jim Jordan and that Jim Jordan is accused by the January 6th committee of having played a serious role in trying to overthrow the election. I mean, these are not disconnected forces. And the central challenge for governing at the heart of them is that the supporters of Donald Trump are have inconsistent desires with the role of legislating and governing. That you could imagine being a big kind of chaos soup that's a problem, but um, probably that all still is defined by Donald Trump. I will repeat the point I always make, which is just, I do think that this reinforces the notion that no one can govern, that politics is broken. Uh, that we need to sweep away the mess that is Washington, even though the mess is being caused by one group of people. And that message generally benefits the nihilistic, anti-political, authoritarian-leaning folks who tend to then go out and vote for Republicans. I don't think it, as I've said many times on the show, I think it's unbelievably damaging to the country as a whole, to the stability of our political systems. But I think as a electoral matter, this probably is a wash or a benefit for Republicans. And I would note, not to get all Roman Empire, I'm a man who thinks about the <laughs> Roman Empire, but this is how political systems collapse when they cannot convene, when they cannot agree on rules and on leaders, when they cannot perform their core functions. This is when political systems cannot maintain themselves. And it it's just a real beacon. It's a it's a beacon, a red beacon about where we are as a country. Slate Plus listeners, you can hear more from us after this episode. You will hear more from us after this episode. You can stick around for our bonus segment. We're going to be talking about the dream team, the news that Oprah approached Mitt Romney to run as a dream team in 2020. We're going to talk about who our dream team ticket would be. 
This segment is just for you, Slate Plus members. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you because of your support. We have been able to keep the GabFest going low these many years. If you are not a Slate Plus member, please sign up. We'd love it. We'd love to talk to you about this. We'd love to to have you in in the club. You would get bonus segments of the GabFest, as well as other Slate podcasts, special discounts to our live shows, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, so much more. So if you're a member, thank you. If you're not a member, please go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. Slate.com slash GabFest plus. President Biden is back from a brief and emotional trip to Israel. He passionately supported Israel's right to take action to destroy Hamas. He supported the claim that the hospital explosion in Gaza was likely caused by a missile fired from within Gaza, not caused by Israel. He also worked to try to get the southern Gaza border open for humanitarian aid to come in from Egypt, uh, some of that aid funded from the United States. And he also encouraged Israel not to go too far in prosecuting the ground war they're about to wage. With Biden back in the U.S., it is almost certainly a matter of a relatively short time before a ground invasion of Gaza begins. So, Emily, what do you think the point of that Israel visit was for Biden? I mean, I think he showed warmth toward Israel, which by only doing that in some ways is a problem, right? Because the Arab world was incredibly upset about this hospital bombing. And then the summit he had planned with the Arab leaders got canceled. So there had been a kind of dual purpose that, to me, made more sense of this trip, a kind of bilateralism. And then it got completely thrown up into the air by the bombing. And so I think, you know, I mean, there's like a little more aid coming into Gaza, some sense of trying to ease the humanitarian crisis there. But I think mostly he presented America as like fully and wholly on the side of Israel. And I think, you know, certainly that is a boon to the Israeli unity government and to Bibi Netanyahu. And I think to the Israeli people, I mean, I think there was a sense of real appreciation from a lot of Israelis, but I am not sure it was really helpful for the broader conflict and the dynamics. John, what do you think? Well, I think the the president's gamble and the State Department's gamble is that only if you show kind of resolute support for Israel, both because it's what you believe, but also politically it puts you in a position where since your commitment to Israel can't be publicly challenged, you can privately say, be restrained, work harder to get relief into Gaza and you have some leverage with the Israelis that you wouldn't have if you didn't make such a public show of it. Right. John, you were on air this week covering this this dreadful, tragic explosion in the Gaza hospital. And one of the things that is confounding everyone is there's this fundamental dispute. Is this Was this explosion caused by an Israeli bombing? Or was this explosion caused by a action by Islamic Jihad, a, a missile strike aimed at Israel that went awry. Why do you think this is an important story? And why has it been so contentious? The original reason it's, of course, important is it may have been, when it was first being reported, it looked like it was the single most deadly event in this since the attack by Hamas. Um, and then there was also some claims that it might have been the single biggest event missile from Israel. Of course, this gets us now very quickly into the original claims from both sides um, about who was to blame. The New York Times picked up at one point that it was and wrote a headline that it was an Israeli missile. So you have you have lots of conflicting things happening quickly in the fog of war, which makes everybody forget that in the fog of war, the first thing you're supposed to do is go, wait a minute. First reports are almost always wrong. We've known that always. So everybody forgot that for a minute. Then there's the just the overwhelming carnage and, and humanitarian sadness and humanity at the center of this, which is overwhelming and hard to wrestle with. Also, obviously, the political question is, is Israel's response going too far in responding to this terror attack? And is this evidence of that? Then you get into the question of who do you rely on for casualty figures? Who do you rely on? So all this was swirling at one moment and the president's trip was about to take place. And this is the, this was, so this was a question of, of media news, uh, you know, biases, 
where you sit depends on where you stand and so forth. But it was also coming at such a crucial point. People were telling the president he shouldn't go on his trip at all when it were their original claims that this was an Israeli missile. The U.S. government is now saying that independent intelligence says it isn't. Open source and um, journalists and others have said that the original claims, both about it being from Israel and the number of casualties, were wrong. The point is that this could have derailed the entire Biden trip, which is also you know, it's not only just a human tragedy that we're all trying to find the details of, but it could have had a significant effect diplomatically. I mean, it did in the sense that it canceled the Arab summit, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. I just meant it could have even gone further because um, there was there were definitely people counseling Biden that he should hold off. And if he'd done that, you know, that would have been even bigger. But yes, as you say, it did cancel the Arab summit. Emily, I think you and I were talking last week with Juliet Kayyem when John was out, and Juliet said she thought sympathy for Israel would last a matter of days, global sympathy. And it appears that at least from a huge chunk of the world, that sympathy has has evaporated or is evaporating. And there's been this kind of reshuffling of global axes with China and Russia and Iran aligning themselves to the Palestinian cause, making the case there should be a ceasefire to prevent Palestinian civilian casualties and Israeli atrocities. Where are we globally? Is this going to be as earth-shaking an event as the Ukraine war has been in terms of redoing how countries relate to each other? I mean, I think that's a great question. And it does seem like we're moving in that multipolar direction of different world powers staking out different positions. And also, there's this peril about, you know, what is holding back Hezbollah? What is Iran going to do? You know, if the Israelis really seem vulnerable and have to fight a two-front war, then what happens? I mean, that becomes a moment of, like, real potential world involvement, including the United States, and seems really scary. Obviously, it's terrifying for Israel, but also really scary in terms of this broader military conflict. And I don't feel like we're right on the edge of that, but we're much closer than is comfortable. I also just found the hours or day of kind of misinformation about the hospital bombing disturbing in itself. I mean, it felt like we were spending a day in Putin's Russia, where it was very hard to know who to trust. The people who seemed to have the best information were the people, you know, data scientists, journalists who actually are used to trying to analyze this kind of evidence. But then there was just so much motivated reasoning of people making claims that, you know, of course, the Israelis did it. No, it was Palestinian Islamic Jihad. I appreciated that the American assessment came fairly quickly, and I'm sure they rushed it out because they could see the ripples this was causing. And it was just really disturbing that, you know, it just sort of hung out there for hours and was having this big impact. And in some quarters is still having the impact, even though, you know, the consensus has shifted considerably on on what happened. Do you think, Emily, that from a moral perspective, it is hugely significant whether Israel did this or not in the broader scheme of the war? There is going to be a war that Israel is going to prosecute on the ground in Gaza. There are strikes which are killing civilians already. Now, they're very legitimate Israeli arguments that these are these strikes are intended to for military targets. Hamas is using the civilian population to hide within. But is this a important moral distinction between what happened in the hospital and what is happening overall? Yes, I think it is because of the timing, because of the attention to it and the claims made for it. I think it matters morally and just uh, diplomatically. I also just remained completely uncertain about what Israel is supposed to do. I mean, you asked me this last week and I didn't have a good answer. I still have no answer. I don't know what they are supposed to do. And other people obviously feel certain in one direction or another. There were hundreds of Jews protesting for peace in the capital, calling for a ceasefire, which I found moving. Um, and then there are lots of people who feel like this is a state, you know, states have to defend themselves and they have to go in and try to uproot Hamas. I remain confused about what the actual strategy for doing that is. And I guess hoping that there is um, a better plan for that than it's evident. I mean, obviously, the Israelis aren't going to share the details of their attack, but I think it just there are no good answers right now. No good moves for Israel to make. And and yeah, I mean, I, that's the larger picture. Well, and this is where presumably, and there's some reporting to support this, this is where Biden was trying to 
have some leverage, leverage that, again, he thinks is purchased by standing publicly in such support of Israel, but basically try, calling for restraint, trying to get some indication of what the end state is, and trying to do this incredibly impossible thing, which is to have a, uh, for Israel to have a thorough retaliation that is somehow precise and only gets the bad guys, which is, which is obviously impossible. But I mean, think about his ability, you know, when you think about who you want and what you want an American president to do is, as you suggested, it's not just manage this incredibly difficult situation, but it's also while China and Russia are meeting and seeking to take advantage of exactly the sentiment that is exacerbated across the world by the treatment of the Palestinians. And while there's a hot war going on in Ukraine, the number of interconnected complexities here that are all facing an American president, you know, should sober everybody up about what that job requires. I would also note, Emily, you referred to a two-front war that Israel might fight, where, where one front would be a war in Gaza, the other front would be a conflict with Hezbollah in the north. I think there's a distinct possibility of a three-front war, which is that the West Bank could become a place of enormous civil conflict. I doubt it will become a place of like as much violence and as much, you know, direct military on military violence as there has been in coming out of Hamas and coming out of Hezbollah. But there's a huge Palestinian population that is living under pretty unpleasant circumstances. And they're very unhappy about the, the conditions in which they live. And they're extremely unhappy to see fellow Palestinians at war with Israel and Gaza. And I, so I think the possibility of Israel having a civil conflict in the West Bank, a hot conflict with Hezbollah on the Lebanon border and potentially in the Golan, even into Syria, and a ground war in Gaza is a is a totally real prospect and would be terrible for the world, terrible for Israel, terrible for the United States, which I think would almost certainly get pulled in to fighting with Hezbollah. I, don't, I think it's you don't send an aircraft carrier group to do nothing. Yeah. Also, even if they don't actually get pulled in, the U.S. is effectively pulled in. I mean, there are Homeland Security threat joint bulletins going out, essentially saying that they're worried about lone wolf actions. Now, in this case, they're worried about lone wolves both uh, attacking those of Muslim and Jewish uh, faiths. You've already seen attacks. You saw the one attack, of course, the gruesome, awful attack of the six-year-old boy killing a six-year-old boy by his landlord. There were, it was a murder of two Swedes in Brussels. A French teacher was killed. A synagogue was bombed in Germany. This has released energy into the world, too. That is another front in this. Yes, there are these ripples of fear among Jews and Muslims all over the world. And that is another alarming part of this. Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is overseeing the federal trial of President Trump, the case involving January 6th and his efforts to overturn the election, this week imposed a partial gag order on him. So, Emily, what did she bar Trump from doing and saying? And what did she not bar Trump from doing and saying? Judge Chutkin said that Trump cannot make public comments targeting the members of her court staff, special counsel Jack Smith, and any members of his staff, as well as any reasonably foreseeable witnesses in this big federal criminal case against him. He can still criticize her and President Biden and the Justice Department. And so this is her way of trying to thread a needle. She's trying to protect the people who are you know, the kind of collateral damage possibilities. And Trump had already gone after the member of a staff of another judge. And, you know, Trump bullying you and naming you can unleash like whole torrents of follow-up abuse. So that seems like a legitimate fear. On the other hand, he is probably the Republican presidential candidate. And so he should have a lot of room to campaign and to complain about this criminal prosecution and to say that it's unfair and to call Joe Biden crooked. And so she tried to leave all of that open. It seemed to me like a pretty narrow ruling. There's one part of it where she talked about targeting that suggested it could have some kind of broader application. And I think we'll have to see, but I would expect her to, to read that provision narrowly as well, because obviously she does not really want to get into a confrontation with him about how she enforces this order. Interestingly, she exempted herself from the order, although she herself has been the target of death threats. Someone has been, I believe, arrested and charged for making death threats towards her. So 
that's a active a little bit of courage there but one thing i didn't understand emily probably because i didn't read carefully enough is when you are criminally indicted do you surrender certain first amendment rights can the government curtail your speech in any way that it wants or are there limits there are limits you don't automatically lose your speech rights you still have first amendment rights but it's pretty routine for judges to issue gag orders effectively that prevent you from going after people involved in the case and sometimes from talking about the case at all and there are kind of two justifications for this one which doesn't arise very much, but is very present in this case, is the idea that, you know, witnesses and court staff could actually be in jeopardy from the criticisms that you're launching. And the second issue is about tainting the jury pool, this idea that if you're out there alleging all these things that's swirling around in the news coverage, that that's going to affect how potential jurors see the case, and that's a kind of unfair advantage you're trying to take. You know, the second justification, I honestly have always just sort of been skeptical of. I, it just seems to me like the idea that you can have an untainted jury pool when there's a case with a lot of publicity is kind of pie in the sky. And I'm not exactly sure why American law gives so much credence to it, but it is definitely out there as this well-established legal principle. John, how do you think this is going to work as a political matter? Because Trump has already, <laughs> it's immediately upon this order being issued, he he went right up to the line with an attack on crooked Joe Biden, uh, which he's allowed to do, according to Chutkin. But do you think it's going to be, is it going to be a, a tool in his his arsenal, another weapon for him in his arsenal of anti-democracy? Absolutely. No, you know, he is making great use and talking at great length about his inability to talk. So obviously, as is the case with everything pretty much everything he does, with the exception of his name, he's distorting and misrepresenting what the gag order is um, and saying, you know, I'm a political candidate and I can't and I can't speak. This connects to obviously a larger debate and a, and a legitimate debate going on in America and that has a lot of fuel on the right about what you can and can't say in what spaces and who gets who gets shut out. And so it lands uh, the idea that malevolent forces are trying to shut him up, obviously lands in super fertile territory. And so in addition to the fact that he would be raising money off of this and making hay out of it simply in the way he has all other legal issues that he's run into, it also has this special existing part of the political discourse on the right. Uh, so, yeah, he'll... Um, He'll keep doing it, although it's a kind of perpetual machine, which is that he has to make hay of it to raise money so that he can pay his lawyers who are engaged in all of these these legal fights. So it's not exactly clear exactly how much it's helping him outside of just paying the bills to deal with all of these various legal fights he's engaged in. He's a billionaire. He doesn't need to raise money to pay his legal bills. He chooses to raise money to pay his legal bills. Well, that is a, That is an option that he has taken because he knows he can Sure. But I mean, to the extent that he's if it, it, the pot of money by his behavior so far is a limited one. And so the resources he's applying are strained by this. I mean, maybe he'll dip into his pockets. It's not really clear what's in those pockets, basically, based on the civil case in New York. So, by the way, really interesting stuff happening in that civil case, by the way, accountants coming forward and saying, yeah, I was told to say things that weren't true which hasn't gotten so much coverage. And also in the Kenneth Cheesebro case down in Georgia, the uh, Times printed memo or emails in which Chesbro or Cheesebro, I've seen, heard both uh, pronunciations, who was part of the fake elector scheme, basically said, didn't just talk about it in terms of legal, the legal case, but basically said the legal case didn't have any chance, but that it had all of these political implications. And the reason that matters is that his defense and Trump's defense has always been, oh, well, this was just legal advice. It wasn't a political scheme. But these emails seem to suggest that, no, that it was a political scheme and Trump wasn't just getting legal advice. He was getting political advice. I'm really glad you brought all of that up because you're right. None of this is getting sufficient play because we are so focused on all these other crazy stories. Which, by the way, we should note, of course, is what Trump is doing. Obviously, he's keeping the attention on him and the antics and not how poorly the legal situation is, is going forward for him in the many, many different cases. He also had to testify in the Peter Strzok case, the two uh, former um, FBI officials who were suing the Department of Justice, one for wrongful termination, the other for breach of privacy. Oh my gosh, it's a busy legal landscape. 
And the Cheeseboro facts coming out especially have implications for Trump and his own criminal jeopardy, right? I mean, the fraud case is about the Trump organization and its liabilities, but the personal risk to Trump is the most, I think, from these Cheeseboro, I'm going to keep saying his name that way, uh, revelations. Emily, just returning to the gag order for a second, how is this enforceable? So as I understand it, this would be if if Trump were to go and uh, say Jack Smith is a murdering child molester who is, you know, has a vendetta against me and he should be killed. That would be a form of criminal contempt of this gag order. But isn't criminal contempt then just another trial that would have to happen? Yeah, that seems like really not a kind of road that the judge is going to want to go down. And so I would imagine she's going to try to keep this in the land of civil contempt. And, you know, obviously imprisoning Trump for contempt is really something that would be very hard to actually do, given that he's a political candidate. And so you know, she's trying to warn him. She's trying to create this particular safety zone for witnesses and people who work for the court. Maybe he can respect that. And I think if he can't, then her first go-to is going to be fines. I suspect he will stay just on the right side of the line. Just barely. I think so, too. Or maybe court a fine and yeah, then back exactly. off. Like, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, she's given him a lot of room. Like, she really imposed what I think in some ways is a pretty minimalist order. I mean, we'll see how she enforces it, but that's what it looks like it, she's trying to do. Final point on this for either one of you, because you're both so up on it. When do we think any of these criminal trials might happen? The, the looks, like GabFest listeners, you cannot see the look. Emily, Emily's look, Emily does have this distinctive look where she grabs her mouth and then kind of looks a little bit to the side. That's what you do when you don't know about something, which is a, that's a, that's like a Bazelon tick. And you just did that. John seems to be Googling. No, no, Google, I was like, please Google. I think it's still March, right? I haven't heard anyone officially yeah. back off of March 4th, my birthday. I think, well, March 4th is where the gen, when the January 6th federal case starts. And the only reason I hesitate is um, to give the illusion that I'm pondering this complicated question as opposed to opening the cupboard and seeing it absolutely bare of ideas or information. I think March 4th is, is because it's uh, your birthday and also because it is your birthday, right? Right? Yeah. And a sentence. And a sentence. That's the thing I've been holding on to. But all these other dates keep flying in and out. Anyway, so we know that the January 6th case starts on March 4th. I think there are other, the Eugene Carroll case, I think, might still be happening in January. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you're contemplating what you're going to get, Emily, for her birthday, John. Uh, you're planning six months in advance what you're going to get her for her, her birthday. And you're having a drink as you do that. What are you going to be chattering to Mrs. D about? Well, I'm going to be chattering to something that has afflicted all, uh, not, well, not all Dickerson members of the family. It certainly affected me. This is the snooze bar I'm talking about. And also uh, our youngest child is uh, engaged in a relationship with the snooze bar. And troubling uh, news out of Sweden, I believe, which is that it turns out hitting the snooze button, snooze bar is not bad for you, maybe. And basically, it has no impact on sleep quality. And this was studied by basically looking at 1700 adults and testing whether snooze, those who hit the snooze bar had worse results. And what they found was, in fact, it not only did you not have worse results. In some cases, hitting the button multiple times over 30 minutes can spark alertness more quickly than sleeping through without a break. I mean, this is this is bad. Bad for parents. This is bad for parents. I used to, when I was in college, I had, I put my alarm clock at the top of my shelf. I slept at the top of a bunk bed. I would get down off the bunk bed, hit the floor, step up on the desk, reach up, hit the snooze bar, back down off the desk on the floor, climb up to the bunk and go back to sleep. And I would do that multiple times. And so we really should have a clear message that the snooze bar is awful. You just got to get up and get going when it starts. This, this information is going to set back human productivity by years. Are you guys snooze bars users? Have you been historically? Never. No, but not historically? No. I'm, I, I think there are people who are not users, and I'm one of them, and Emily apparently is one of them. And then the people who are users, I just, I've always hated it. Emily, why don't you use it? 
Well, I pre-wake up. I hate alarms. And so if I possibly can, I beat the alarm. But then, of course, that's not great either. Because if you beat the alarm by like an hour or half an hour, you're cheating yourself out of a lot of sleep. But it's so stressful. I can't. Setting an alarm is, to me, an act of self-violence. Because anytime I set an alarm, I guarantee that I will wake up half an hour before that alarm. And it's, it's terrible. Wait, here's a question. How often, seven, five days a week in the work week, uh, or the old-fashioned work week anyway, how many of those days do you set an alarm because you Zero. have to? Oh, my God. Zero. Really? Yeah, because I wake, I wake up really early anyway, and I, plus I, I make my, I'm CEO of a company, so my schedule is what it is. But, like, today we have an early yeah. taping. I, I was up hours before we have an early taping. No worries. And if I have a flight, like I've often the thing, the incident that happens with yeah. me is if I've got a 7 a.m. flight out somewhere and I know I've got to get to the airport at 545. And so I've got to be up at, you know, five. I will set my alarm for five and then I will wake up at four. Yeah, I do that, too. But I, I really don't like getting up super early. I wish I did. Well, but I guess my point is you set the alarm, whether you get up before it or not is a distinct issue. But. My gosh. I mean, I guess I just have to get you have up. You have a for, job, man. You do morning television. Yeah. You, <laughs> <laughs> I have a job. <laughs> I know, but John has a job where if he didn't show up, there would be a problem if there's a if they show the set and there's no John Dickerson. Yeah, that's true. I had a, the pleasant experience, John, this week as I was on YouTube and I clicked on a link on YouTube to learn more about actually the, the Gaza hospital explosion. And there you were. It was so pleasant. Oh, good. I hope it was informative. It was informative. Oh, good. You know, Charlie Daggett um, did our reporting on that, and he really did a great job of – this was right when it was everything was unknown, and I thought he did a great job of just dealing with all the complexities of the story and uh, centering it on the, you know, on the human tragedy, which the entire war is. Anyway, he did a great job. I don't even know where we were, but I think, Emily, it's your chatter. <laughs> That was a weird, that was like such a digression, even by GABFA standards. Even by our standards. I am very happy about Poland. I feel like Poland, happy bright spot exclamation point, is an excellent chatter this week uh, because the autocratic conservative party Law and Justice, or PIS, um, lost it appears. I mean, now these three opposition parties who together have a majority have to come together to form a coalition government. So it's not all settled. But, you know, this is kind of an amazing potential turnaround from autocracy because uh, the Law and Justice Party had done all kinds of things to squelch democracy in Poland, taking over the courts, state-run media, uh, messing around with state administration and politicizing it. There are now, you know, hacks up and down the Polish government who are somehow going to have to be uprooted. But despite the fact that they changed the electoral laws before the election, they lost. And there was huge turnout. It was above 70 percent. Assuming this turnaround can actually begin to happen, there's going to be some fascinating lessons to learn about how you take a democracy that um, has been wrecked and actually put it back together again. Indeed. I am so excited. Maybe we should have Anne Applebaum, who lives in Poland and is a student of Poland's politics, uh, whose family is involved in all of this, come on and talk about it. And in the meantime, she has a good piece about it in The Atlantic. My chatter is just a recommendation of a Netflix documentary, Beckham, which is a four-part docu-series about David Beckham and David Beckham's wife, Victoria Adams, a.k.a. Posh Spice. Uh, and it's an extraordinarily good documentary. Even if you don't really care about soccer, even if you don't really know much about David Beckham, even if you don't know much about Posh Spice, it is just a very vivid portrait of a person and a marriage and a life and a way that the culture changed. And the Beckhams were kind of front and center of this moment where they were, in fact, maybe the cause of this moment where sports sports and celebrity merge and sports and celebrity become attached and, and, a, and an accelerant of the world's celebrity culture. And yet they are, especially David, David Beckham is a very endearing person. And he has also a lot of endearing friends. And Victoria Beckham is a fascinating person and also endearing and in her own way, kind of spiky, but her reputation as being a terror seems to have been somewhat unfair. 
Anyway, it's a great documentary on Netflix, Beckham. Listeners, you've got chatters. You have chatters. And you have emailed them to us at gabfestslate.com, and we appreciate it and we love getting them. And want to please keep them coming to us. And this week's listener chatter comes from Phoebe Saltstein in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hello, GabFest. This is Phoebe Saltstein from Albuquerque, New Mexico. My cocktail chatter is an article from MarketWatch by Brett Arens titled, Here's the Real Cause of the Social Security Funding Shortfall According to the Program's Chief Actuary. In the article, he argues that fixes made to Social Security by Alan Greenspan in the 80s didn't work to keep Social Security solvent to 2050 as predicted, not because of the baby boomer situation, but because the rise in income inequality above the payroll tax cap has meant so much less revenue to the program. This year, the payroll tax cap for Social Security is $160,200 a year, which is more than twice my public school teacher salary. The author's proposed solutions are raising the cap, cutting benefits, or taxing wealth to shore up the system, which will become insolvent in 2034. Thanks a lot. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced this week by Kevin Bendis. Shana is still out. I think she'll be back next week. Our researcher is Julie Hugan, who got up insanely early in mountain time to to tape with us today. Thank you, Julie. Did you set an alarm? Did you set an alarm, Julie? Good question. Did Julie set an alarm? Yes, no? Yes. Julie did set an alarm. Julie does not seem like a person who has to set, hit a snooze button. She's a get up and go person. Oh, and she woke up before it. Yeah, because she's military. She was military. That's why. She doesn't fuck around. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond, Senior Director for Podcast Ops. Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please send us your chatter at gabfestatslate.com for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm so glad the three of us are together. It's been a little bit. Oh, my gosh. Not only am I glad we're together, but I was in the, I was in the company of many wonderful people at my nephew's resplendent and fantastic wedding and there were many gabfest fans there i had a lovely long conversation with max who was listens to the show and people are just so wonderful and so i had to rush back and tell you all how many fans you have out in the world um and how delightful it is to receive compliments on your behalf uh well i can't wait to see some of them in the majestic theater in madison next week and to see you guys in person huzzah we got to make a plan when we're getting together okay bye Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So there's this great detail in McKay Coppin's new biography of Mitt Romney, people who got early access to it, had this glorious detail that Oprah Winfrey apparently approached Mitt Romney about them running together as a dream team with Romney at the top of the ticket and Oprah as the VP candidate in 2020 in hopes of ensuring Donald Trump was not elected president. The two of them... Uh, knew each other, had a kind of long-standing, friendly acquaintanceship, and and I guess Oprah was an admirer of the the Utah senator. So the idea of them as a dream team delighted us and and captured our imagination. So we thought we'd talk a little bit who our dream team would be and why. Anyone want to start? Well, uh, since it was my since I stumbled this into creation, first of all, I just love the. There's so much about politics right now that lacks kind of creativity and there's a lot of like unicorn like what if we had a person who did this and this so i guess what i'm saying is not exactly right but still i just like the kind of i don't know it just uh touched something that seemed less depressing than so much of the way we look at the presidency but it also has uh grounding in fact herbert hoover who was asked to look at the presidency by truman said you know there really should be um, this kind of idea of a co-presidency where you split the duties. This also was, was something Walter Lippmann suggested after Eisenhower's heart attack, essentially because the health of presidents had been so rumbly around that period. The view was that the job was too much for any one person. So splitting it is is also a way to talk about the job and and how difficult it is and why you should want that. But if I were to suggest a person, all of which is, I think is good, if I were to suggest a person, I think some somewhere in there, somebody like Tim Cook, who is at Apple, because he has this one 
particular skill that I think is useful for a president. And actually, Biden has part of this. James Bennett writes about this in The Economist in his dealing with Israel, which is that Biden basically deals with a lot of people who he might not otherwise really like. His relationship with Netanyahu is not fantastic. His relationship with Kevin McCarthy wasn't great. But he basically has to do in those jobs what you have to do. And Tim Cook has done that with Donald Trump, Carl Icahn. The Chinese, basically, there were reports a couple of months ago that they were going to you know, the government was saying don't use Apple products. And then yesterday, I think it was, Bloomberg announces that some Chinese official comes out and basically says, we love the we love Apple. And, um, you know, we we hope it will make dividends from the Chinese market. Now, obviously, there are complexities with this. And I don't want this to turn into a conversation about Apple. But just the idea that if you're in a position where you are required to deal with characters who are doing things that you might not otherwise like, but where you're compelled to deal with them, that's a huge part of that job. I don't know who would be the co-president in that instance, though. You copped out, man. You got to you gotta give a co-president. Got to be a because, co-president. So well, Tim, Cook has, the... Tim Cook brings X, and so who's going to bring So he the... brings managing a huge corporation, which is you know not wholly dissimilar from some parts of the presidency, and he deals with people he doesn't like. So you'd, you'd want to like a, the more ceremonial parts of the job, like a chief empathy president. And I, I can't quite figure out who that is maybe i mean it's still oprah <laughs> yeah yeah it's still oprah it could very well be oprah or 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 um i mean the the most empathetic and biggest heart person i know is actually gail king so maybe it should, should be gail king <laughs> oprah's oprah's close friend there you yeah. go the uh i thought the oprah romney dream team was kind of an, a brilliant idea like they are actually I could, I was, as I was trying to think of my own example, I couldn't think of an example that was better. Emily, who's, who is yours? I mean, I have my examples, but. No, no, you go first. And isn't it Michael Bloomberg? Didn't you find some place in your heart? So Michael Bloomberg is too old. So Michael Bloomberg is unfortunately too old. Obviously, 20 years ago, I would have wanted Michael Bloomberg. Also, he wouldn't give up the other, he wouldn't give up the other parts of the job. Yeah. This requires understanding the load sharing part of it. Yes. I, I suppose that's, that's true. I know this is a very unfashionable thing to say, but uh, I actually think where the pairing that definitely had this right was that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.